Uh, well, friends, uh, what is your attitude towards authority? Uh, what is your attitude towards authority? Uh, you might have seen the now infamous images of crowds of people at Bondi Beach. Uh, it was major news recently as image after image surfaced of people reveling in the sun at Bondi, despite the government banning such close contact due to COVID-19. Now, uh, you might say that this is uncharacteristic of Australians. Yet, Australians have always had this kind of rebellious streak, haven't we? Uh, we are anti-authoritarian. We, we like to cut down the tall poppy. Uh, we don't like other people telling us what to do, and we are proud of it. However, as the Bondi Beach incident has brought home to many, rejecting good authority is a foolish thing to do. In fact, rejecting such authority can even mean death. And submission to good authority, uh, which has long been a dirty word in Australian public life, can mean saving your life. Now, what is your attitude towards good authority? Uh, well, this morning we're continuing our series on Matthew's Gospel. Uh, if you remember from previous weeks, uh, Jesus has just entered Jerusalem. Uh, in a matter of days, uh, he will be crucified on a Roman cross. Yet he's also been doing some provocative things which have brought him into serious conflict with the religious leaders of Israel. Uh, things like you know, riding Messiah-like into Jerusalem on a donkey and overturning the ta table of the money changers in the temple. And so it's in this context of conflict with the religious leaders that Jesus is asked a question about his own authority. Um, if you flip back a few verses, you can see it there in chapter 21, verse 23. Chapter 21, verse 23, um, the religious leaders ask Jesus, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Now, I want you to notice that after questioning the religious leaders about the authority of John the Baptist, which we saw last week, Jesus then proceeds to tell three parables, uh, including the one that we're going to look at this morning. And Jesus directs these parables against the religious leaders of Israel in order to show his authority as God's Messiah and King. And friends, I, I want to suggest that this is vitally important for you and me to hear this morning because our attitude towards the authority of Jesus is the difference between eternal life and eternal death. Uh, what is your attitude towards the authority of Jesus? Uh, now, we're looking at the parable of the tenants, uh, which is the second of the parables. But uh, what is this parable all about? Well, you can see there that on the surface, it's about a wealthy master uh, who plants a vineyard and then leases it out to some tenants who are expected to return some of the fruit to the master. Uh, you can see it there in verse 33, can't you? Verse 33, uh, Jesus says, uh, Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to, to tenants uh, and went away 
into another country. But Jesus is not just telling this parable because, you know, it's a, it's a good yarn, it's a good story. Now, this parable is meant to be symbolic of Israel's history and an indictment against her leaders. Uh, you see, the wealthy master here symbolizes God himself. Uh, the vineyard symbolizes uh, the nation of Israel, which was a common image for the, the, the nation of Israel, as we saw in Isaiah 5 this morning. Uh, you know, the symbol of Australia is uh, perhaps the kangaroo. Uh, the symbol of Korea uh, is a tiger. The symbol of Israel was a vineyard because as God's people, well, they were expected to produce fruit, the fruit of a righteous life. Further, the tenants here symbolize the leaders of Israel who were expected to, to lead uh, the people in producing this kind of fruit in their lives. Now, did you notice just how much the master does here in order for this vineyard to produce fruit? Uh, in verse 33, he puts a fence around it to protect it from wild animals. Uh, further, he makes a a wine press so that the fruit can be turned into the best quality Shiraz. Further still, he builds a tower so that the vineyard can be protected from uh, enemies. Uh, you see the picture. Uh, it's a picture of Israel's privileged history under God, isn't it? Uh, you see, the nation of Israel was an insignificant nation. It was a little blip on the radar. And yet, if you know the story, God chose this nation to be his precious and privileged people. He, he rescued this nation from the might of Egypt in the Exodus so that they might dwell in their own land. He gave them his righteous law so that they might produce the fruit of righteousness in their lives in ways that would attract the other nations to their God. Um, and so he set leaders over the nation of Israel who might nurture this kind of uh, fruitful life in the people of Israel to the glory of God. And yet, uh, what happens in this parable? Well, uh, when the wealthy master sends his servants to collect fruit from the tenants, uh, you can see there that the tenants end up mistreating the Mercy. servants yeah. and, and beating them and killing them. Uh, notice that this happens twice. Uh, firstly, in, in verse 34, the master sends a group of servants uh, only to see them beaten and killed and stoned by the servants. But secondly, in verse 36, uh, notice that he sends a bigger group of servants only to see them treated exactly the same way. Uh, you see, in rejecting the servants, the tenants are actually rejecting the authority of the wealthy master himself. Now, again, uh, this is true in Israel's history, isn't it? Uh, the servants here are meant to symbolize the prophets whom God sent to Israel as his representatives and spokesmen. And yet, again and again, the, the prophets of Israel were mistreated and persecuted and even killed by the leaders of Israel. Uh, in 1 Kings chapter 18, a group of prophets, you might remember, uh, are put to death by Queen Jezebel. In Jeremiah 20, the, the prophet Jeremiah is beaten and, and put in stocks by one of the priests of Israel. A tradition has it that the prophet Isaiah was sawn in two by one of the kings of Israel. 
again and again, the leaders of Israel mistreat and put to death the servants of God. Uh, now, how would you expect the wealthy master to respond to the, serv- to, uh, to the tenants rather, after what they have done to his servants? Well, the astonishing thing in our parable this morning is that the master uh, sends his very own son in the hope that the tenants would respect and listen to his authority. And yet, tragically, the tenants behave in exactly the same way. You can see it there in verse 37. Let's have a read of verse 37. Uh, finally, he said to his son, uh, finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard, and they killed him. Now, now friends, I don't know about you, but when I read this, I can't help but think that the master is a little bit crazy here. I mean, isn't it crazy and unreasonable and even perhaps irresponsible that the master would send his own son after after the track record of these tenants in killing servant after servant? Now, wouldn't, it make, wouldn't it make more sense if the master sends his lawyers instead so that he can get justice? But friends, I think that's precisely the point. Uh, in one sense, yes, the master's actions here are crazy and unreasonable and irrational. But you've got to remember that the master here is not simply making a business decision. No, what we are meant to see is God's crazy and, in one sense, unreasonable and irrational love towards his vineyard. A love that goes to the extraordinary length of sending his own beloved son for the sake of his people and to see them producing fruit. It's what the Apostle John means when he writes those wonderful words, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now, the tragedy, of course, is that in this parable, the tenants refuse to recognize the authority of the master's son and to relinquish their authority to him. Uh, Rather, uh, what they do is they plot against this son and they take him by force and they kill him outside of the vineyard. It's a clear reference to what the leaders of Israel will later do in Matthew's gospel as they plot against Jesus as God's son and as they arrest him by force and as they then proceed to crucify him at Golgotha, which is just outside of Jerusalem. These leaders are no different to the leaders of old in Israel's history. Uh, However, here's the thing, friends. Did you notice just how delusional the leaders of Israel really are? Uh, How are they delusional? Well, I think you can see their delusion in what they say to Jesus towards the end of the parable. When Jesus asked them uh, what the master should do to the tenants who killed the son. Uh, Let's pick it up from verse 40. Jesus asks the religious leaders in verse 40, 
when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And the religious leaders said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their season. Uh, you see, the leaders of Israel want to condemn these tenants to death. Literally, this reads, he will put those bad men to a bad death. But why would the leaders of Israel say this? Are they so thick? Are they so obtuse as to not realize that Jesus is speaking about them here when Jesus speaks about the tenants? Are they that stupid that they would be condemning themselves? Selves here? Uh, well, friends, I, I don't think they are stupid here, but rather they are delusional. In other words, they are not putting themselves in the shoes of the tenants as they hear Jesus's parable. Rather, I think they are putting themselves in the shoes of the servants who belong to God. Uh, perhaps they are thinking that the tenants here are other authorities, authorities like the Roman Empire who occupied Israel at this time and who challenged their own authority. Uh, they are seeing themselves as God's servants. Now, that's why they are only too happy to condemn such people to a bad end or a miserable death at the hand of God. And friends, uh, whilst this clearly shows up the delusion of the religious leaders of Israel, uh, it also tells us something about the delusion of human sinfulness, doesn't it? I mean, how many billions of people around the world live in rejection of God's son in their lives, a rejection of Jesus's authority in their lives, and yet think that God is somehow on their side? Now, how many people do we know who have no time for Jesus and his word? and yet think that God is on their side? How many people do we know who have completely ignored Jesus in their lives and yet think they will have eternal life? You see, it's a complete delusion. And only the word of God is powerful enough to shatter such delusions and bring people to a right understanding of who Jesus really is. Well then, what does Jesus say to Israel's delusional leaders who continue to reject his authority as God's son? Well, even though Jesus knows that such rejection will lead to his death on a Roman cross, uh, notice that he also says here that there will be a great reversal. Uh, let's pick it up from verse 42. Uh, verse 42, Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone this was the lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes and therefore i tell you the kingdom of god will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits and the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces and when it falls on anyone it will crush him You see, Jesus changes the scene here uh, from a vineyard to a construction site. Uh, the picture here is of some builders who are 
uh, sort of looking around for some material for a building project. And uh, they come across a particular stone, but they reject it and they toss it away, thinking that it will be of no use. And yet later on, they are embarrassed to see that this stone that they had rejected has actually become the cornerstone of a much more impressive and opulent and remarkable building. Uh, what is a cornerstone? Well, um, this is kind of what it looks like. I think we had a helpful kids talk this morning that also mentioned this. Um, but a cornerstone was the most important stone in ancient buildings. Uh, it was the first stone laid in the corner of a building as a foundation for the rest of the building and as a reference point from which uh, the entire building was, was built. Uh, without this stone, there would be no building. Now, uh, Jesus quotes here from Psalm 118, which is a passage that describes God's judgment on the nations who had rejected God. However, notice here that Jesus flips this around and applies this passage to the religious leaders of Israel. And what Jesus is saying here is loud and clear, isn't it? He is the stone that the religious leaders of Israel, who were meant to be the builders of God's kingdom in Israel, had rejected. In fact, their rejection of Jesus will lead tragically to his death on the cross. And yet Jesus says here that there will also be this great reversal. In other words, after his death, he will rise again so that there will be no doubt as to his authority as God's son and king. And as the risen king, he will be the cornerstone upon which God's building or church or kingdom will be built. I mean, imagine that, friends. The one you kill comes back to be the king of the world. And so because the religious leaders of Israel have rejected Jesus, well, Jesus in the end will reject them. And notice that the kingdom of God will be taken away from them and given to others who will bear fruit and be involved in the work of building God's kingdom, not only in Israel, but throughout the nations. And friends, this is exactly what we see happening in the rest of the New Testament and beyond, isn't it? The religious leaders of Israel are rejected by Jesus and cast out of his kingdom. They are replaced by new leaders in the apostles. And it is through their testimony about Jesus being God's king that the kingdom of God grows as people come to see just how marvelous it is that God's plan for this world would involve his beloved son dying for sinners and rising again to be the undisputed king and cornerstone of this world. And so, friends, if you are someone who is here this morning and you can say, uh, yes, it is so marvellous that Jesus died for my sins on the cross and that he rose to life to be my king. If that is marvellous in your eyes, then praise God. For although God takes away the kingdom from those who reject his son, he delights to give it to those who receive him and bear the fruit of lips that proclaim his name. And so if that is you, 
then will you rejoice this morning? And will you keep on bearing uh, the fruit of lips that proclaim the name of Jesus as you and I together take part in the building up of God's kingdom? Well, friends, uh, this morning I began by asking the question, uh, what is your attitude towards good authority? Uh, It's not too difficult to find examples of people who foolishly reject good authority these days, isn't it? Uh, Just this week, you might have seen the example uh, of that woman who intentionally coughed and dribbled and spat on a police officer who pulled her up for speeding while she was getting te- uh, while she was driving to get tested for COVID-19. It's always a mistake to reject good authority like that, particularly when he was trying to save her life. She's probably thinking things over in a jail cell at the moment. But what God warns us against in this passage this morning is the absolute foolishness of rejecting the authority of Jesus as God's son and king. For the religious leaders of Israel, uh, it was too late. There would be no turning back. They would be condemned by the risen Lord Jesus and be cast out of his kingdom. And yet this passage also gives a glimmer of hope to those who have yet to turn back to Jesus as God's son and king. That's there in verse 44 where Jesus says, And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. You see, there are two possibilities, isn't there? I don't think that that first reference uh, is meant to be a negative thing. It's not about being broken to pieces. Uh, It's about falling before Jesus as the cornerstone and being broken before him as you realize that you have rejected God's uh, rule in your life in the past, but now recognize Jesus's rightful rule so that you might receive a place in God's kingdom. Or on the other hand, you can continue to reject Jesus. You can metaphorically keep on spitting in his face and one day be crushed by him, who is the cornerstone when he returns to judge the world. And so friends, uh, if you have not yet turned to Jesus as your king, if you have yet to give him the ultimate authority in your life, then please turn to him today. I hope you can see that he is a marvelous king, a good king, a king who loved you so much that he died on the cross so that you might be forgiven of your sinful rejection of of God in your life and so that you might find a place in his kingdom. But if you do not turn to him, then be warned. One day when you breathe your last breath or when he returns to judge the world as the risen king, whichever comes first, you will be crushed, says Jesus. And if you are someone who knows Jesus as king, then I want to remind us that uh, there is a worse thing in this world right now than the coronavirus, as bad as that is and as hard as our circumstances might be at the moment. And that is the fact that so many people are living in rejection of God's king, oblivious to their danger. 
deluded and facing a future where they will be crushed by him. Will you and I be on our knees praying for our world to submit to the authority of Jesus the King before it is too late? Now, next week, friends, is Easter. Now, what a great opportunity to invite our family and our friends, our work colleagues who are stuck at home with not much to do these days, to come and join us online to hear about the death and resurrection of Jesus and to see just how marvellous this Jesus really is. Now, let me lead us in prayer. Uh, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, this morning that in your great love, you have sent your son into this world to give his life for sinners like us so that we might not perish but have eternal life. We pray that you would help us to rejoice in him this morning and to see him as marvellous in our eyes. Now, Father, we know that even those of us who have turned to your son as king uh, often fail to live like he is our king. Uh, we are by nature those who love to run our own lives as though we were king instead. And so please forgive us for those times, uh, particularly as we suffer this period of difficulty in our lives and in our world. Uh, please reveal to us those parts of our lives that are not aligned to your will and help us to bear the fruit of repentance and the fruit of lips that proclaim your name. Now, Father, we especially want to pray for our world this morning. Thank you that despite the awfulness of the coronavirus, uh, it has reminded our world of the fragility of life and the closeness of death and the need to be right with you. And uh, we pray that you would show your mercy to many all across this world, particularly with Easter around the corner, that people might be awakened from their delusion that they might see Jesus clearly and that they might turn to him as their king and saviour. We pray also that you would wake us up, uh, perhaps from the coldness of our own hearts, and seek the salvation of others during this time. We pray all these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.